Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. According to a variety of sources, the English language is near the top with regards to number of words at nearly 600,000. And even though that's a lot of words, according to a chart on rosettastone.com, in the 2017 Wuri Mal Saim Dictionary, the Korean language, encompassing both North and South Korea, has over 1.1 million words. That's a lot of words. But those words do nothing unless they're strung together in a way that communicate a coherent thought. To add to the complexity, the words can be woven in a way that absolutely fulfills the requirement of coherency while still saying absolutely nothing or communicating pure nonsense. Taking for granted that the previous words I strung together are both coherent and non-nonsensical, what are we to do? Well, to quote the words of Obi-Wan Kenobi, we must be careful. On today's episode, first we're going to use smart words stupidly that communicate how to do stupid things smartly, then we'll be educated about how good old words are bad current words. So, make sure you have a new HEPA filter and collection bag in your vacuum, and get a new ink pad for your cancelled stamp, because here, bumfuzzle cattywampus. As a reminder, This is going on right now. The planet has a fever. If your baby has a fever... You go to the doctor. You take action. The planet has a fever. Yeah, it so badly has a fever that two years after this admonishment of you and I not caring that the Earth has a fever, Gore revealed that it's been determined that by 2016, the polar ice caps would be completely ice-free. Sort of, he said that. Look, let me let you hear what he had to say from 2009 about what he learned from Professor of Oceanography, Dr. Maslowski. And these are figures uh, that are fresh. I don't know if they've been, uh, I don't know when they were released, but I just got them yesterday from uh, from, uh, Dr. Vashlav Maslowski at the Naval Postgraduate School. And this is the volumetric record of the ice. And uh, some of the models suggests to Dr. Maslowski that there is a 75% chance that the entire North Polar ice cap during summer, during some of the summer months could be completely ice-free within the next five to seven years. I got to be honest, that is got to be one of my favorite, if not my favorite Al Gore quote right there. Some of the models suggest that there's a 75% chance during some of the summer months it'll all be gone in five to seven years, which incidentally would have been 2014 to 2016. And yet, despite Al saying a big nothing in that quote, he's continued to, to be listened to by people, which means we need to do something, right? And since we didn't kill ourselves fast enough, since we still like meat and dairy, since we still drive cars with internal combustion engines, or as I call them, real cars, and since we're just addicted to consistent, plentiful electricity, we just don't care about the earth fever and some seemingly spurious models, well, drastic measures, stupid measures, in fact, need to be taken. So in part one, we talked about calming the ocean's heartburn, right? We were going to uh, process the mining waste and then just pump it into the oceans like crazy to try to bring the pH up to, to make the water more basic or less acidic so it can absorb more and more CO2 out of our atmosphere. Now, we learned that the oceans are currently absorbing CO2 at a furious pace, causing the waters to turn into just pure acid, while at the same time the oceans are so saturated with CO2, it's very difficult to run absorption tests. So, both things 
at the same time, apparently. We also know that pumping in processed mine waste will affect the oceans and the creatures in the oceans. We just don't really know to what extent or, or how severely. This could solve all of our problems. Or it could destroy the oceans and ocean life. I'm not even really sure what pulling CO2 out of the air will do to all the plants and the trees that need this to live, you know, on the earth. And they like, you know, like CO2. They thrive, in fact, on excessive CO2 levels. We also learned that we're going to need to pull 10 gigatons of CO2 out of the atmosphere by 2050. And the leading startup company to pursue this ocean destruction technology, well, they'll be ready to go by 2045. Mm -hmm, five years early, to pull out one gigaton, uh, if their pipe dream comes to fruition, but definitely they'll be able to pull a few million tons out of the atmosphere. So, you know, 0.01% or so, give or take. The only thing we don't know is what will this kind of wonderfulness cost us? I bet it's a whole bunch. But before you look at the stupidity of this idea and resign yourself to an impending heat death, I mean, they're talking about an increase of 1.5 degrees Celsius here. I mean, this is nothing to laugh at, people. Before you grab your gun and your Bible and go attend your hate-fueled flat-earth MAGA rally, those that take this seriously have yet another idea to save people like you. And I believe that we would be negligent in our duty here on the Logical Christian Podcast, if we didn't investigate this innovative solution fully as well. Found on gizmodo.com, headline, Physicists propose blasting moon dust into space to fix climate change. The byline is fantastic. Quote, we could cut fossil fuel use, or we could put cannons on the moon and shoot enough dust into orbit to block out the light of the sun. So those are literally our two options right there. <sighs> that there are people that actually believe this kind of foolishness. I, I know it shouldn't be, but it just it amazes me every single time. The first paragraph doesn't get any better. Quote, in case you haven't noticed, things are getting a little bit desperate when it comes to climate change. We need global solutions and meaningful action as of yesterday. But our political leaders and corporate overlords alike are mostly doubling down on the status quo. Enter theoretical physicists. I mean, really? I mean, I seriously haven't noticed things getting desperate. That's the first thing. I've noticed a lot more people trying to convince me, despite my own senses, my own logic, that things are getting desperate, but that's, that's all I've really noticed. Now, the author, Lauren Leffer, says that we need to take action yesterday, but is she, an alleged reporter, not able to look up all of the doomsday prophecies that have been made over the last 50-plus years and how every single one of them has failed? Then apparently no. No, she doesn't have the internet, I guess, or something. I'm not really sure. As for our political leaders and corporate overlords, well, this just proves she's not in touch with reality, as nearly all of those two demographics, which includes both the Democrats and the Republicans, are 100% on board with the man-caused climate change hoax. But let's continue on. If I have to correct every sentence Ms. Leffer writes, well, I have no doubt she would probably cry about mansplaining and screech at me or something. I don't know. And this isn't going to get any better. <laughs> I shouldn't be shocked by each insufferably arrogant, dramatized falsehood she spins. But here we are. Incidentally, just as an aside, the author... Lauren Leffer, when checking out her Twitter bio, seems, I don't know, less crazy than most of these so-called science reporters. Quote, breaking news reporter at Gizmodo, former bug scientist, current science journalist, bylines at PopSci, at Nat Geo, at Audubon Mag, etc. All views my own. <clears throat> and then we get to the Coupe de Grasse here. <laughs> Quote, she, they. Now, come on. You can't be a singular and a plural at the same time. And, and what does that even mean? What, she's female unless she's many females? Uh, yeah, so basically she's as loony as the rest. Anyway, back to our regularly scheduled climate salvific method. Because of our unrepentant climate sins, we're apparently at our last gasp here. This is desperation now. We're shooting the half-court shot. We're throwing up the Hail Mary, if you will. We're trying to steal home in the ninth 
Let's see, soccer, soccer. Oh, we're actually kicking the ball toward the goal, finally. <clears throat> yeah, we're doing all of those things that you only do when you have no other option. Luckily, the University of Utah, along with Harvard, have some people that actually care, unlike you, and are clearly geniuses. Their solution? Well, they propose, quote, shooting millions of metric tons of moon dust into Earth's orbit every year to partially block out the sun's rays, thus cooling the planet. This is our most desperate hour, but as Ms., or a gaggle of leffers, says, we're only exploring this crazy town option because, quote, down on Earth, fossil fuel companies are achieving record profits, abandoning even their weak emissions reduction promises, and actively working to increase their oil and gas production. This says a lot about society. So this collaborative research team published their proposal in the journal PLOS Climate. Yeah, I didn't say a word funnily. I didn't try to say plus and screw it up. No, PLOS, P-L-O-S. Apparently, this stands for Public Library of Science. It's literally just an open access type of publisher. So the way I understand it, if you've written something, I don't know, science-y, you can pretty much just publish it there. And then you can say you're published. Like, you know, one step up from a blog post. Anyway... In their study, they say that they studied various types of dust, various concentrations. In fact, they, quote, used mathematical modeling to determine the ideal type of particle, particle distribution, and necessary particle mass for shading Earth from the sun. In their tests, they were aiming for a 1.8% attenuation of the sun's heat, equal to about six days per year of an obscured sun, according to the study. Now, in their study, they used a lot of fancy terms for dust, but found that lunar dust would work best, but apparently also just as best as coal dust. Or really, they found that pretty much any dust particulate would accomplish the same thing, but I guess they like the idea of blowing up the moon or something, I don't know. So they'd need to puff only about 54 million metric tons of lunar dust into the atmosphere at a very strategic orbit, so it would stay in orbit the longest, in order to offset your global warming. Now, this wouldn't be all at once, of course. That would be silly. No, this would be puffing out dust every couple days to keep space dusty enough to help us not burn up in a fiery heat death of about plus 1.5 degrees Celsius, as opposed to now, by like next century or something like that. The single multiple reporter stated, quote, Notably, the study authors didn't include any sort of cost analysis in the publication. Oh, wait, they didn't? <laughs> Weird. Probably an oversight. What they did look at is various delivery methods of dust into the atmosphere, because when cost isn't a consideration, I mean, the sky or, or the atmosphere is the limit, right? Well, they came up with two possibilities. Again, cost is no object here. Option one. Station an orbiting platform in a very specific orbit that just poots out dust clouds. Now, I'm not going to venture into their study because it's frankly just raw stupidity, and I'm embarrassed to call myself a scientist if this is who I'd be associated with at this point. But how does this platform get resupplied with the massive amount of dust? Are we just going to have a large vacuum hose that's sucking dust off the moon? Or will we have a conveyor belt with astronauts on either end, one just shoveling on the dust at the moon and one shoveling off the dust at the platform into the pooting hopper? I'd need to know some logistics for this magical farting platform. Option two, as if you seriously think option one can't be topped, just have a, a moon cannon on the moon, just shooting dust off of the moon surface. Again, I have a few logical questions. Fun fact, remember when we landed on the moon? I mean, not you and I personally, but America in general. Remember how long the lunar lander legs were and that the astronauts had to use that little ladder to get down to the surface? Those legs were set at the height they were because science calculated there would be that thick of a layer of dust on the moon and that they could just step out of the door. And why did they think that? Because that's what evolutionary science, <clears throat> use that term loosely, told them, based on millions of years of calculations. But when they landed, that's not what they found. 
there was, what, an inch or two? It was enough for the tread of their moon boots to be seen, which incidentally calculates to thousands, not millions of years of dust accumulation. You want to prove to your moon landing conspiracy theorist friends that the landing was real and not on a soundstage in Hollywood? Uh, the thickness of the dust layer proves that they actually landed on the moon. If this was done in Hollywood, do you seriously think they'd write the script to disprove or make more difficult their evolution theory? Anyway... I say that to, to say this, there, there's not a lot of dust on the moon, and since it's not overly dusty, they would in short order have to uh, create moon dust, which would mean an entire mining, grinding, milling, sifting, filtering operation, and I'll get into the composition of moon dust in a moment, but let's just say it's harsh, which means it would be very destructive to the mining and grinding equipment, which means we'd have to have literal crews of maintenance and operations personnel stationed at the moon cannons in order to keep them putting out the moon dust. When do we need the solution by? Because it's taking, what, a decade just to return someone to the moon? We went from basically no space program and rudimentary missiles to men on the moon in less than a decade, but we can't seem to get a person back up on the moon again with all the knowledge that we already have. And that just kind of seems silly, right? I mean, is that just me? So when do we need these cannons by? Because that seems more complex than just landing on the moon. Now, lest you think these guys are out to lunch, you know, in their brain, they admit that this really isn't or shouldn't be the answer, but please keep supplying us with grant money anyways. <sighs> really, quote, the hard work is here at home. Climate change mitigation measures like leaving the fossil fuels in the ground, carbon recapture, and other strategies are essential and must remain the primary focus for addressing climate change. Well, I retract my previous statement. You know, the one about their brain. Now, this concept of fogging our atmosphere is far from a novel concept. These guys just took what's already been discussed and moved it to, to, to moon dust with farty moon cannons. This has been proposed in 2011, 2016, and 2021 from what I found after about a 0.5 second Google search. And I think this actually goes back to the 70s or 80s. It was something like that was the oldest proposal that I had seen at some point in the past. But nobody's ever done it, and it's always been dismissed because, um, because it's stupid. They use more science-based terms, but it comes down to it being stupid. And beyond the stupidiosiousness of the idea, it's unbelievably dangerous. You get one small part of this wrong, you don't slightly cool the Earth. You plunge us into an ice age, an ice age that's much more destructive in, as an event than a, than a degree or two of increase on the other side. Now, now why do I say that? Well... Isn't that what happened to the dinosaurs, right, allegedly? So one thing young Earth creationists and evolutionists can agree on is that there was definitely an ice age in the past, a large one, a massive global cooling event. Now, evolutionary theory, I don't want to call it science anymore, believes that there have been many of these, which begs the question, wouldn't that imply global warming events as well? And wouldn't that therefore imply a cyclical nature of global climate? Again, that's how digression works, I guess, for me. We can all agree that there was, at a minimum, one Ice Age event. The evidence is conclusive. According to the theory of evolution, the massive asteroid impacted the planet. It, among other things, threw a massive amount of dust into the atmosphere, which blocked out the sunlight, caused massive cooling, killed the dinosaurs, ushered in the era of the little furry, fluffy, cute mammals, since they had the fur coats. Oddly enough, the general creationist model, pinning the Ice Age as an after-effect of the global destruction and the flood of Noah's Day, also had a massive amount of particulate in the atmosphere from erupting volcanoes, and we know that some massive asteroids have hit this planet in the past. I'd say it's possible that they were part of the flood event overall and also contributed to this. So both theories agree that too much dust in the atmosphere can cause an ice age. I, for one, don't want an ice age. I grew up in Wisconsin. I don't want an ice age. I'd rather it be a bit warmer than a whole lot colder. And look, my parents are getting older. I'm not sure that they could outrun an approaching glacier anymore. Not with their arms full of cats for one and tools and parts for the other. I'll let you decide who's carrying what. So we're going to trust a mathematical model and highly reliable mining, crushing, grinding, sifting, filtering equipment, feeding a precisely calibrated and controlled poot cannon. Yeah, I don't think I'm okay with this. I, I work with machines. 
I'm responsible for the reliability of machines and um, just no. And let's take a look at this dust. Now, I stumbled upon this factoid as I was searching for what we'll talk about shortly after this part here from NASA.gov in an article from 2009 where they describe lunar dust. They start by saying, quote, here on Earth, Dust can be bothersome, but it is mostly a harmless annoyance. In the space environment, however, dust can pose severe health and safety challenges. Oh, that doesn't sound okay. They say that lunar dust is contaminated with UV radiation, and it has a high iron content, at which point they say it's detrimental to the human body. If it gets into the eyes or the lungs, it can do some very nasty things. Additionally, quote, Lunar dust also has a unique configuration of small fine particles with extremely sharp edges that can be dangerous when inhaled. Oh, and also, quote, because lunar dust has an electrostatic charge, it can cling to any surface with which it comes in contact, making it particularly difficult to remove from surfaces like spacesuits, spacecraft, and equipment. And they wrap it up with stating that Planned trips to Mars would require the moon as a launching pad, so, quote, scientists are working to develop countermeasures to overcome the harmful properties of lunar dust and to prevent it from interfering with sensitive equipment. So, okay, <laughs> a little recap here. It's radioactive and metallic. It's very sharp, all of those making it very dangerous to humans. The sharpness and the ironness of it also makes it very hard on equipment, and the fact that it's statically charged means it just hangs on to everything. Now, I know that most people wouldn't think of mining, grinding, crushing, sifting, filtering, and conveying equipment as precision, but with aggressive materials like what this sounds like, uh, it would systematically destroy everything it touches in very short order. I sure hope that they have a good stock of spare parts on moon base farty cannon. Now, beyond that, have you heard of gravity before? I'm sure you've heard of it. It makes things fall down. Sometimes, depending on the orbit and the momentum, if they have correcting little booster rockets or not, things can stay in orbit for a very long time. But if that something is caught in the gravitational pull of the Earth, eventually it heads down toward the surface. Now, as of right now, the approximate amount of space dust that gets into the atmosphere of Earth is 10,000 to 20,000 tons per year. Some of that makes it through the atmosphere and to the Earth. So 10 to 20,000 tons is equivalent to 9 to 18,000 metric tons. And they want to just put 54 million metric tons of dust into our atmosphere into orbit every year. Now, that's 3,000 to 6,000 times the current rate of space dust, and since they say we'll have to do this every year, well, what's happening to the 54 million metric tons from last year? Well, it's falling toward the Earth. Now, some will burn up, but some will make it through to, you know, our air and our water and our land. How much? Oh, oh no idea, but we can be confident saying uh, 3,000 to 6,000 more times than at our current level. But that's not all. See, not all of this will fall to Earth or not as fast. Some will actually stay up in space, float around for a while, and we'll be adding more to this dust fog every year. Well, good, you say, let it stay up there as much as possible. There's another problem. We spoke about the micrometeoroids back in a segment on the James Webb Telescope way back, who knows when, back in the podcast. One of the high-precision, highly-polished, high-dollar mirrored surfaces was damaged by a micrometeoroid. They were concerned that this was going to destroy the entire James Webb mission. Now, these are typically very tiny rocks, a few hundred micrometers across. Think maybe a half a dozen hairs from your head set side by side. Not terribly large. These are floating through space. This mirror was damaged to the point that it, it could still be used, but they had to recalibrate the software to take the damage into account. This lunar or space dust will pockmark the glass windows and the heat shields of spacecraft, and it's an ever-present danger and concern for inhabitants of the International Space Station, as one of these little fellas could tear a hole through the side of the station based on the composition, the sharpness, and the velocity of the impact. But now we're just going to pump 54 million metric tons of this dust, and no filtration system is perfect, so you'd have to expect a fraction of a percent of larger particles to make it through and get shot into the atmosphere along with it. Now, even if we went with a very high-precision filter, that would still allow an additional, let's say, 10 to 50,000 metric tons of micrometeoroids per year 
to be shot into the atmosphere. With the ever-increasing number of satellites, concepts of moon bases, new space stations, etc., how can all of these additional particles floating around up there that are considered very dangerous, massively threatening in the world of space exploration, how, how can this be a good thing? Now, it turns out our multi-person reporter author actually agrees. There are risks to this and other geoengineering, which I think is Latin for screwing with creation because we think we're God. She says, quote, At this point in human history, it should be obvious that all efforts, intentional or otherwise, to change Earth's atmosphere, oceans, or climate on any grand scale come with a boatload of unintended consequences, from destroying the feel of astronomy to potentially trashing agriculture. Geoengineering is incredibly risky. <laughs> Wait a minute, what was that second one again? Trashing agriculture? Well, look, I'll be honest. Astronomy isn't high on my list of things I'm concerned with, but ag, I almost feel like we should be careful with that, especially since in the last few decades we shifted to having more people die from obesity-related issues than malnutrition. Admittedly, neither is good, but utilizing self-control so that we cannot eat as much or not as much junk as we currently do, that's that's a better position to be in than, you know, not having food because we don't have as much control over the starvation part. Fortunately, it may not have to get to this. Quote, when it comes to addressing climate change, we've got options. We could build a network of dust cannons on the moon. Yes. Or we could build a comprehensive electrified mass transit system. We could send 54 million metric tons of lunar dirt into orbit every year. Or we could expand our offshore wind capacity over offshore drilling. We could do what's guaranteed to work, or we could make a perilous bid for a sci-fi future, which is more likely to end well. It probably doesn't take a rocket scientist or a theoretical physicist to figure out those odds. Oh my goodness! The arrogance dripping off this individual or individuals that doesn't even know if she's a single or a multiple. If you have pronouns of she, they, proving that you have no grasp on science, how can you lecture us on science? No, my dear, or or my dears. The reality is, her plan of electrified mass transit and wind farms saving the climate is a pipe dream. Climate scientists have pretty much agreed that if every country abided by the Paris Climate Accords, which are very stringent in their requirements, it still wouldn't be enough to stop that 1.5 degree C temperature rise that's apparently the one thing that will doom us to destruction. The problem is, not everyone is abiding by the accord. In fact, China is... Oh, sorry. China is bringing a new coal-fired power plant online about every two weeks. Why? Because they hate the climate. No, that's not actually true. Because their people need electricity. I mean, that's it. That's the reason. I mean, it's selfish, right? I mean, how very selfish is that? America and the entire Western world could literally shut off all fossil fuels today, right now, and it wouldn't make a dent in the horror that is greenhouse gas around the globe. The author, like most of those that claim climate superiority, have done little to no research on the subject, at least not outside of their approved sources. They've never evaluated what they've been indoctrinated to think for accuracy, for viability. They're under a fear-based mass psychosis that something must be done, and since man clearly caused the problem, man must fix the problem. Their own theories contradict their own beliefs about the evolving of stars and planets and vegetation and animals and plants and everything else, and they can't see it. They must borrow logic from a biblical worldview in order to evaluate data, but then they disregard the Bible and misuse or disregard the logic entirely to draw their conclusions. Now, as I stated in part one, the reality is we've totally disregarded even the possibility of a God, as displayed by our lack of logic, our lack of responsibility, our disdain for creation, and our God complex that's making people think more and more that, oh, I did this, and I can fix this. This is not a good position to be in. The planet has been around for 6,000 years and endured some pretty crazy stuff. The temperatures have risen and lowered, the ice has grown and receded, the rivers have been literally on fire and they've been cleaned up, the sky they've cleaned themselves up, the skies have been filled with smog and like the rivers, they've cleaned themselves up. Millions of acres have burned to the ground and we have more green space today than we've ever had in the past. See, from this perspective, a worldview that says that the Bible is correct, that God not only created all of this, not only holds it all together by his power, but set up the planet to adapt and heal and change and continue until its appointed hour, that's what we've seen over and over again. That's what it does. Our thinking that 
that we somehow have the ability to or that we should screw with the natural processes of the planet is the epitome of foolishness. There is no possible way that that could ever, ever end well. The reason we haven't shot dust up into the atmosphere before is because cooler heads prevailed and said, ooh, that could, could end really badly. How about we don't do that? Regardless of if you believe in young Earth creation or evolution, you can't possibly defend a position to mess with the solar system, with our ecosystem. Either God is in control, having designed the planet to deal with anything we can throw at it, because God not only designed it to deal with humans, not only foresaw what humans would do on this planet, but foreordained all that will or won't happen on this planet, and is currently holding it all together by his power, as I said, until the appointed hour, or... In millions and millions of years of evolution, this planet has been through much, much worse, and it has survived and thrived, and any changes will do nothing but force additional evolution of man and animals and the planet, and isn't that a good thing? Because of the facts of these two positions, it only leaves one option as to why we want to do stupid things like fart unbelievably dangerous dust into the atmosphere. Arrogance. Well, mixed with raw delusion, at least. Mankind in general just simply believes himself to be the ultimate power in the universe, and that's it. Now, as Christians, we are simply called to care for the earth. That doesn't mean worship the earth. That doesn't mean live in fear of hurting the earth. If you truly believe in an omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign God, you should know that driving your car and using coal to produce electricity will not destroy the planet. If the God you worship is surprised by anything humans have created, any technology we've produced, well, he's not the God of the Bible. Get yourself a real and a much better God. This doesn't mean that in the future, at some point, we may not be able or may be able to move to all solar and wind, although the true greenies don't like solar or wind power either. Look it up. We may be able to move to an all-electric society and never miss a beat. We may be able to eliminate all need for fossil and natural resources. It's not highly likely, but anything is possible. But it would never happen to the detriment of mankind. It would never be something that would result in the deaths of millions, which is exactly what enacting the Green Agenda will do at this point of our history. God did not give us a spirit of fear. Remember that. Power, love, and a sound mind. That's what he's given us. We are not to act, react, or overreact in fear. We have a sound mind. We have the ability to reason and think using data and evidence and logic. That's who we are. That's what we're to do. As saved individuals, we should be the calm, controlled, steady influence in whatever capacity we find ourselves in. We are also to be informed of not only what we believe, but of the facts on our side, of the facts on the other side, we are not to be like the world running in panic from one chaotic mess to another. Because we know that we have a God that holds all of creation in his hands, because we know that we have a God that loves and cares for his creation, because we know that we have a God that not only knows but has ordained the beginning and the end, we literally have no reason to fear. That knowledge can be frustrating as we look out over the unbelieving world but it brings an inner peace as we know that we are not capable of, nor expected to, hold all things together by our own feeble power. It's bad enough when you blow it. You know, when, when you do something just butt stupid, like, like Rosie O'Donnell butt, just a huge, incredibly nasty kind of butt stupid. Don't picture that, you Michael Blind. But as bad as doing something this stupid and just wasting so many hours of my time... As bad as that is, it's worse that I've wasted so many hours of your time, and I, I am truly, truly sorry. For those of you that aren't aware, on alternating podcast episodes, I've been covering the American Genesis, the founding, specifically the founding documents of the United States of America. So far, I've produced 21 segments dealing with the Constitution and the constitutional amendments with, uh, with no end in sight, as it turns out. <clears throat> And uh, I had no idea, or I guess I just didn't think about the fact that uh, found on the nation.com headline, the U.S. Constitution is over two centuries old and showing its age, with the byline, quote, to fix our broken system, we need a new constitutional convention. This was written in 2017. I mean, that thing's even older now. Now, 
The nation is a liberal rag, but this sentiment is actually felt on both sides of the aisle to varying degrees. On the right, there is a group that is actually getting closer and closer to forming a convention of states, which would force through Article 5 of the Constitution, a very specific opening of the Constitution, in order to potentially insert, upon ratification, new amendments, two of which would be term limits for representatives and senators and a balanced budget. And those on the left, they just want to burn the old dusty document to the ground and start over. In 2018, the notorious RBG, you know, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, was interviewed on an Egyptian TV station as Egypt was crafting a new constitution for their new government. She highly recommended that Egypt look to governments such as South Africa or maybe look to the European Convention on Human Rights rather than the U.S. Constitution as our constitution was, quote, a rather old constitution, and those others were, quote, much more recent than the U.S. Constitution. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not say anything about old and RBG. She's dead. We're not going to. She went on, and uh, remember, this is a person that was supposed to be making rulings in the highest court in the land based on constitutional law as the bedrock. Quote, I would not look to the U.S. Constitution if I were drafting a constitution. I might look at the Constitution of South Africa. That was a deliberate attempt to have a fundamental instrument of government that embraced basic human rights, had an independent judiciary. It really is, I think, a great piece of work that was done. Now, if what was said and who it came from doesn't terrify you, you clearly don't understand our Constitution, our government, our judiciary, or pretty much anything at all. The Constitution of the United States is the oldest codified Constitution in the world. It was ratified in 1788. The Constitution has been in continuous use and been considered codified law for nearly 235 years. Only one Constitution is technically older, that of San Marino. You know, San Marino. That one has been in existence and continuous use, sort of, since 1600, but it's not codified, meaning it's not technically law. It is what their current system is based on, but it in itself is not legally binding. So although it's older, for this reason, the U.S. Constitution is considered by most to be the oldest functional legally binding Constitution today. But this is not an American Genesis segment. <laughs> no, sir. Welcome back to our look at the 45 communist goals for the United States. Say it with me. As read into the congressional record in 1963 by a Democrat. Did you emphasize that last bit correctly? <laughs> I bet at least some of you did. So why all this backstory? Well, because goal number 29, quote, discredit the American Constitution by calling it inadequate, old-fashioned, out of step with modern needs, a hindrance to cooperation between nations on a worldwide basis. It's interesting the two positions taken by the left and the right when it comes to things like books and laws and documents, statues, history, etc. Those on the right will generally advocate for keeping but modifying or keeping and contextualizing or something like that. Those on the left are generally for elimination and replacement. I guess that's why you have conservative and progressive, right? For instance, those on the right generally believe that the Constitution has a built-in process to update when and as needed. The Bible is something that is generally and correctly felt that doesn't need any sort of updates. Books, at most, could have a warning or something that simply states that the book, although non-offensive in the era it was written, may contain language and concepts considered unacceptable today. There's something like that, right? We generally advocate for the keeping of statues, maybe with some plaques that explain who it was and what he believed. And we think history, true, complete history, should actually be taught. Now, the left believes that the Constitution should be scrapped, the Bible should be burned to the ground, statues destroyed, books rewritten or banned outright, and history reworked in order to make it fit the narrative of the day. As we've discussed in past segments, those who neglect to remember history are doomed to repeat it. If you want the slavery of one group by another group, just keep doing what you're doing, and in a few generations, yeah, we'll get there. You want racism? 
keep canceling the history of racism. You'll get back to racism in no time. You want, uh, let's say, the enslavement of women, the removal of all women's rights? Just get rid of the Bible. The feminist movement will fade into the darkness in short order. See, you can't just remove and replace. That's not how things work, not in the real world. Our memories are short. Our sinfulness is strong. If we don't have anything to remind us, it won't take long before we fall right back into the old ways that we thought we were just too enlightened to forget. As for the Constitution, the commies know that this single document is a massive thorn in the paw of worldwide communist rule. You can't propagate communism when the document says that each and every person has the God-given right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You can't have socialist control of government, economy, production, etc. if you have a document that clearly spells out a completely different and better form of government. So the communists knew that the Constitution it needs to go if they were going to make any inroads. So in order to remove this constitution, they'd have to get people on their side with a, a very convincing argument. Now, the argument, of course, is that it was unfair, that it was inadequate, that it was old, that it was written by racist slave owners. And, and the list of why the constitution is evil is almost endless. President Barack Obama said in 2001 that, quote, Generally, the Constitution is a charter of negative liberties, says what the states can't do to you, says what the federal government can't do to you, but it doesn't say what the state or federal government must do on your behalf. See, the founders, although well-intentioned, well, they screwed up. They, they just didn't think about this the right way around. Back in the mid-1940s, FDR, one of the worst presidents this country has ever had, proposed a second Bill of Rights because the current documents have, quote, proved inadequate to assure us equality in the pursuit of happiness. So to fix that little oversight, and I guess guarantee happiness for all citizens, he proposed an economic Bill of Rights. In this, he wanted to give everyone a right to employment, a right to an income that can provide food, shelter, and recreation— a right to a fair income for farmers, a right of business to not have to deal with monopolies, a right to decent housing, a right to medical care, a right to social security, and a right to education. Now this, more or less, is what Obama was talking about, a list of things the government must guarantee and provide for you. Now this concept of constitution or bill of rights is what other countries have. It's, it's the same kind of thing. But where do you end this list? Even FDR's list, only 80 years later, sounds a little outdated now. When you start guaranteeing things, how can you ever stop? You have to constantly update the document with the latest fad, the latest felt need. Every time something pops up, it's got to get in there. And if you have a document that states what freedoms you may have, then the document can be altered at any time, and those rights can then just be removed. Back in April of 2020, for instance, the squad introduced a bill that would essentially allow the federal government to own and manage all private property, but only for the duration of the pandemic, of course. How many constitutional rights were violated or were attempted to be violated during the pandemic? What about gun violence? If it wasn't for the pesky constitution, criminals could never obtain guns, right? And then we'd be a utopian society of love and tranquility. Yeah, I think the only part of this goal that hasn't been met or maybe hasn't been pushed because it probably just hasn't been a big enough problem is the part about the Constitution being a hindrance to cooperation between nations on a worldwide basis. But at the same time, how many times have presidents on the left, primarily on the left, but also on the right, complained that they would personally do something, but the Constitution gives that right to the House of Representatives? <clears throat> Or this action must be approved by the Senate. Yeah. Looking at the wars and conflicts, the agreements and the treaties we've been involved in, and either directly or indirectly with the Constitution, can you imagine what we would have done without the Constitution? I mean, that was with. Look at everything that's been done with the Constitution. Now, fortunately, there are still enough people that believe the Constitution was and is a very important document, that it was divinely inspired, that it's a document that's created the best form of government, at least that we know of in the history of the earth, and that we're not just ready to dump it and start over. So I can't give the Reds a full check on this one, but uh, looking at our current political climate, I'll give them half a point, which brings them to a nice 21 out of 29 goals accomplished thus far. Now, Goal number 30 is in the same vein as goal 29, so we might as well hit that one too, right? Goal number 30, quote, 
discredit the American founding fathers, present them as selfish aristocrats who had no concern for the common man. Now I'll say this, this one they did not accomplish, not as written. You can see the communist flair though, can't you? I mean, look at those rich men trying to tell you how to live, writing their rich man rules, telling you what you can and can't do, just like a bunch of rich, out-of-touch elites. You should eliminate them from your history and eliminate everything that came from them in order to rid yourself of their evil, their rich evil. Of course, all that should be said in a Russian accent. This argument pretty much fell flat with regard to the founders, okay? But let's be honest. By the time these goals came out, the 1950s, the 1960s, really the general wealth of the citizens of the United States was at a level that trying to make people believe that the founders were just rich aristocrats, eh, that's going to fall on deaf ears. I mean, that kind of thing just, it just wouldn't compute. But if you split this goal into two parts, that's a different story. So taking the second half first, because that's how we do things, quote, present them, we'll define them in a second, present them as selfish aristocrats who had no concern for the common man. Well, if we define them as, let's say, corporations and CEOs, business owners, entrepreneurs, right, then yeah, there, there has definitely been a hatred for the so-called rich embedded deeply into the heart of America. We know the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And the concept of eat the rich, despite being a solid Aerosmith song from back in the day, stems from that kind of evil. At the same time, when you look at how differently conservatives and progressives look at the American population, you see that those on the left are nothing but closeted commies. Those on the left always talk about how we must increase the middle class, how we must help the middle class prosper, how the history of our country is built on people working to attain to the level of the middle class. Is that true? Do the majority of Americans sit back and say, man, I'd sure love to be average. I mean, if I could make a solid middle income, that would be just the best. You know, not poverty, but not really ever being comfortable. That would be perfect. The sweet spot, if you will. <laughs> now, that is not the general goal of Americans, no matter how much the elite leftists want to tell us it is. The conservative right, on the other hand, generally wants to increase the wealth of everyone if possible, or at least give people the ability to move from growing up in poverty to leaving a life-changing legacy to your kids, rags to riches, you know, in one generation. And if you want to move from uh, rags to rags and just stay embroiled in poverty your whole life, well, that's your right as well. But the opportunity was there regardless of if you wanted to avail yourself of it or not. It's what the people on the right want to do. And this is the difference between the trickle-down economic theory and the theory of bottom-up. The problem is that you can't push a rope. Now, I work for a big company, and I have done so ever since I got out of college. My first two employers, Michelin, you know, the tire guys, and Dow Chemical, the, the chemical guys, both of which I haven't worked for for years now, do you have any idea how much the CEOs made when I worked for them? Yeah, me neither. I don't care. I'd rather that they weren't criminals. I'd rather they didn't screw the company they're managing so they can make a few extra dollars. But overall, I really don't care how much they made. I know how much I made, and my salaries have afforded me the ability to live comfortably, enjoy a small amount of recreation, pay my bills, provide for my family, etc., etc. And I've had opportunities to climb ladders that could have given me more money, but so far, I've declined. Because I have a kid, I have a church, I have a life outside of work, and my career as a reliability engineer allows me to make good money while taking advantage of the ability to have a great work-life balance. As long as I can do that, what do I care what the CEO makes? He's making money because the company is making money. The company is making money because, theoretically, the CEO is steering the ship in the right direction. And since the company is making money, I make money. The wealth trickles down. The bottom-up philosophy is a farce on its face. It's nothing but a lie. It's the theory that if you can provide a solid living wage for the bottom rung of the ladder, then everyone will attain wealth together. This is the union philosophy. Everyone get paid the same. We can all obtain the wealth of the middle class together. Not counting the union leadership, of course, as they're being paid quite handsomely for, for doing literally nothing. Prove me wrong. Now, I'm not against a living wage, quote-unquote, based on the job, of course. If you're thinking a part-time job at McDonald's should earn a living wage, well, you're wrong. But I say that this is a lie because the money to pay these wages, it has to come from somewhere. 
either people are paid from the deep pockets of the government, who does nothing but steal money from you and I to redistribute to others, or the government forces the business to use more of their profits to pay wages, which generally means a combination of higher prices for the consumer, <laughs> you and I, and less investment back into the business to make repairs and improvements. What never happens is a company just saying, ah, we'll lower profits and lower our shareholders' dividends, etc., etc., in order to comply with socialistic government regulations. As for the other half of this goal, discrediting the Founding Fathers, yeah, not because of wealth, though, because of racism. That's the tactic that's been used by the leftists and the, the socialists, the closet communists, in positions of political power in our country over the last few years. You know, they were slaveholders, thus racist and must be canceled. We're not very far from removing them from our currency, from removing the statues and paintings, names on the streets, and finally the monuments. Now, will it get that far? I don't know. Maybe, given a little more time, it's not going to happen right now, but we're definitely heading that direction. So, although I can't give the communists a point on this one, and I honestly don't think we'll ever be able to give them a point on this one, not as written, because we're, we're just too far removed from the founders to connect them with wealth. The reality is wealth has been and is currently demonized, and with inflation, with the economy collapsing, the widening of the split between the haves and the have-nots, the, well, the jealousy and covetousness will increase. The feeling of being slighted and cheated will increase as time goes on. Add into that the growing disdain for the founders, the leftist goal of destroying the founders, and the erasing and rewriting of history of our founding. Eh, I mean, this goal is nearly accomplished, actually, probably to a larger degree than they likely imagined, but we're not quite there yet, and it wasn't done as written. So, not being able to give them that one, we're at a score of 21 points out of 30, which helps the good guys, that's, uh, that's the not commies, uh, actually gain a little ground back from where we ended last time. Now we're sitting at just a nice even 70%. And that's where we'll leave our look at the 45 communist goals for America for this time. Join me next time as we move into the final third of the goals. Some very interesting goals coming up. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. <laughs>